the Main Character Podcast with Zan Bennett. I was 18 years old, living in Colorado, working as a waiter, as a busser, and a bunch of odd jobs. I worked at a shop that sold t-shirts. I worked at a shop that sold gifts. This was all at the same time. I had four or five different jobs. And there was a reason. I was working these jobs five, six, seven days a week, double shifts, because I was saving money for the next adventure. Something that I've found to be very important in life is that you always have to have an adventure on the horizon. This doesn't have to be a safari or a cruise or scuba diving with sharks. It can be, but it can also be the kinds of adventures that change you, that grow you, that drive you to be a better person, an adventure in personal growth. I decided I was going to move to Australia. And so over that summer, I saved a couple thousand dollars, three, four thousand dollars, and I bought a one-way ticket to Australia. And the plan was to figure it out. And this is something that people do all the time, particularly people from Germany. Lots of Europeans fly to Australia and do a similar path that I was on. But for me, it felt very out there. And that's part of the reason why I chose to do it. Because no one I had known had ever done anything like that. Just because the people in my circles hadn't. I lived in a small town in Colorado. And so most of that money went towards the flight. And when I arrived, I had maybe three weeks worth of money to stay at a hostel. And I had to get a job. And my job was to get a job. So I flew in and I knew, I was like, how can I be as prepared as possible? And when I land, I take all these classes become certified bartender, certified working in casinos, certified food handler. And then I took a bus to a small town called Byron Bay. Byron Bay is a famous town, world famous. Celebrities live there and it's beautiful. It's a gorgeous little spot on the beach and it's not very large at all. And it's surrounded by these huge swaths of beaches. And Byron Bay's primary beach, the one that's in front of the small town, is famous for its nature reserve, preserve that's in the water. And so it has incredible reefs. And because of that, it's protected. And because it's protected, and because it has these incredible reefs, and because it's famous, and people travel there from around the world to go surfing because it has excellent surf, it is the shark attack capital of the world. So I fly into Byron Bay. I'm staying at a hostel. And if you've ever stayed at a hostel you may remember or know of the fact that it is not a place where you get a lot of sleep. We had a dorm bedroom, 10 or 12 people in the same room, bunk beds. I had a bottom bunk, which you learned pretty early on is the better bunk when you're staying a long time in a dorm because you can get in and out of bed. And if we left fruit out, which since people are coming in and leaving, tended to be something that happened quite a bit. The lizards, these large iguana-like lizards, would come in and be feasting on the fruit in our room. And you'd have to go in and chase them out, and they'd scamper away. And you met all kinds of people, young people, old people from the U.S., from Europe, from other places in Australia. They all came together, and they're primarily there to have a good time. People are there to live. If you're in a hostel in Australia, then you've selected for a group of people that are trying to do a wild, fun experience. And they tend to be people that are making it work. 
They're not staying in a fancy hotel. And because of that, there's a certain charm. There's a certain charisma. There's a certain fun to it. And so we're in this hostel and I have to go get a job. So what do I do? I'm like, okay, print out a bunch of resumes. And I printed a whole bunch of them, like a stack of 50. And then I just walked around town and to every place that I found, I made a judgment call. I was like, is this somewhere that I'd like to work? And frankly, I didn't have a lot of uh, ability to choose. So I would go in and if it looked like a good place, I would go there and apply. And I applied to a bunch of jobs and I ended up getting two jobs. So I was the bartender at a place called The Balcony, which is this famous bar in Byron Bay. And then I was a server at a small restaurant on the beach called Fish Heads. And Fish Heads was the only restaurant that was actually on the beach. And so pretty quickly, I learned a couple of things. One is that serving or bartending in Australia is a fundamentally different game than in the States. And the reason why is because of the incentive model. So in the States, you're getting tipped. Most of your money, most of your wage comes from tip. And so you are always trying to create great service. And you've created this way of being excellent at delivering to the customer and you know what it takes to get a good tip and you're always thinking about that and it's always paramount in how you do your job because that's how you get paid but in australia that's not how you get paid in fact you don't get many tips at all almost all of the money that you make comes from what you're getting paid from the restaurant i remember one time where i had this big dinner table and it was like i don't know eight nine ten people and there were definitely not an easy group it was a group that you had to deliver a lot of plates, had a lot of problems. I wanted to do a really good job because that's just how I'd done serving tables before. And they tipped me and they tipped me. It was like this hundreds of dollars was the bill. They tipped me like five Australian dollars, which is, I don't know, at the time, like three US dollars, something like that. And I remember him being like, hey, you really earned this. And I was like, and I appreciated it. In the moment, I appreciated it. But in the back of my mind, I was like, funny, like this culture is built around like this tip is something that he's probably the largest tip he's given somebody in a while. And it's for him, he's signaling, just like somebody in the US, he's signaling to me that I did a good job by tipping me. But this tip was insurmountable in terms of my life. Like I could barely buy a cup of coffee with it. And these jobs are tough. Like I'm working, I got aprons, I'm coming home to the hostel, covered in grease, showering at the hostel, which is not super private. It's definitely not luxurious. And then we'd be hanging out with new friends and meeting new people. And it'd be like always meeting new people, right? Which is both exceptionally exciting and stimulating and also challenging because like you form these deep connections and, and you form them more quickly and it feels like more genuinely than you really do almost anywhere else. It's this little zone of the world where you just really connect with people and you can connect with them early and you can be authentic and you're all going through some pain. And so because of that, it's like the perfect atmosphere to bond with people. And then they just move on, right? And then it's just the next people or you move on, right? And you move to the next place. And I made friends there that I've known for life. And as a quick side note, and as an example of that, there was one guy who, good friend of mine, who I met at that hostel we hung out for maybe a day, like not long, didn't see him again, five years later on a completely different project when I was coming back from Egypt, I stopped in the United Kingdom, in England, in London, and I had put a post on Facebook, which this was during the time period that a lot of people used Facebook, and I said, I'm going to be in England, is anyone in town, I would love to catch up. 
And this guy who I hadn't seen in years, who I hadn't talked to in years, reached out to me and was like, yes, I can pick you up from the airport. Let's go. You can stay with me. I'll show you England. And I was like, amazing. That sounds exceptional. Let's do that. Thank you. He picks me up. We go straight from the airport to Stonehenge. And so I'm like an archaeology nerd. And I was like, incredible experience to be able to see this juxtaposition of these ancient places next to each other. And he also took me along to his family home where he had like a pond outside and we caught one of the fish from his grandfather's pond and moved into his pond. And we had strawberries and cream with his grandmother. And he showed me an inside look at England. Like we stopped at like little pubs that only English people ever hang out at. And we drove to the South and We had just like this incredible human experience and I got to experience England in a way that I never would have if I had just stayed in London and stayed at some hostel and done like the touristy things. And it was all because of that relationship that we built in Australia. So let's take this back to Australia, right? So we're meeting people. I'm making connections. I don't know if I'll ever see these people again. Some people I never see again. Some people I do. And the adventures are all around. And so I'll tell you about one of the adventures. It must have been five or six Scottish girls who were coming through. They were staying at the hostel. And we got to talking and I was telling them, because I'd been there for a few weeks at this point, that there's this shipwreck that is off the coast of the beach. And it's not that far off the coast. It's just past the wave brink. So think if you're looking at the ocean, like the waves are coming in and at a certain point, you don't really see the waves. It's kind of like the waves are hills, but they're not breaking. There's no white. That's right where it was. So it's about the edge of where you might swim if you weren't going to go swim in the ocean. It's really where the beach and the ocean meet. And so this shipwreck, I don't know exactly, maybe a hundred years old, was a metal ship, like some sort of steam engine, I believe, and is really large. And it had this big metal pole that was so big that it came out of the water and then it was like an L and you could see the shipwreck because you could see that L and it maybe came a few feet above the water. So it wasn't big, but you could identify where it was. So I'm talking to the girls. I'm like, this is amazing. One of the bucket list items that I have is to go snorkel on that shipwreck and go see some amazing animals, fish, right? And they're like, okay, that sounds great. Let's do it. We go, we rent snorkeling gear. So goggles, mask, a tube that we can breathe through. And then we're walking down the beach. As we're walking down the beach, we pass by one of those lifeguards and the lifeguard looking out on the beach. And I asked him, because we're nervous. We know about the sharks. And we're like, I don't know. It's a shipwreck. There's probably sharks there. But again, sharks are this thing that people always worry about. But a lot of people spend a lot of time around sharks. At this time, we asked the lifeguard, we're like, hey, we're going to go snorkel out there. People do this all the time, right? Is this something you should be worried about? Are there going to be sharks out there? And I remember him being just so nonchalant. He was just, yeah, there's sharks. I was like, oh, so should we not go? Are we worried? Don't be worried. I was like, should we go? You got to be careful. And so at this point, he was making clear that there's going to be sharks out there. And the shark attack capital of the world. So we're like, great, whatever. We're young, probably not the best at making decisions. And I was with these five girls I had just told about the shipwreck, I wasn't going to be like, all right, we're not going. So we, of course, swim to the shipwreck. And in the water, as we're swimming out there, the water is very rough that day. And the waves are huge. 
And they're so huge and it's so difficult to swim out there, even with our snorkeling gear, that things are falling off. You can barely breathe. You have to swim between the waves and then jump over the waves or dive under. And then like you get pushed back. It's like a fight. It's like a fight to get out there. And so by the time that we actually get out there, I look around and four of the five girls have turned back and are somewhere on the path towards the beach. And so it's me and my one friend. We're the only two that made out here, and we're both exhausted, right? And so there's this metal pole that's coming out of the shipwreck, and we can see some stuff, and there's lots of animals underneath it. But I'm like, okay, I'm going to go on top of that pole, and then we're going to see it from above. I can rest for a second. So I go up to the pole, and the pole is like a few feet above the water, and it's this big L. And so I reach up, and I grab the pole, hold on to it, but it slips because the water is coming and going. And so then it comes again where it's another wave, one of these round waves that goes up. And as that water goes up, I am the closest to the top of the pole as possible. So then I grab onto the pole, I hold on, and I pull myself up. It's one solid motion right at the top of the wave. And as soon as that happens, the barnacles, which are on the pole right next to the the horizontal part, so the barnacles on the vertical part, tear open my leg. So I'm on top of this pole, my leg, and I remember looking down and seeing blood dripping into the water. This water above the shipwreck in this crazy reef area. And and at that exact moment, before I even caught, could take in the situation, the girl, my friend, who was in the water starts screaming. And like in that, I'm sure in my head that she must have been attacked by a shark. And now people have told me that sharks aren't attracted to blood in the water or not human blood. At the time, I was under the impression they were. I don't know. She's screaming. I'm like up here panicking. And I remember in my head thinking, okay, so the sharks are probably triangulating on our position because we have blood in the water. We have this screaming girl splashing. I have no idea what's going on with her. I'm trying to communicate with her. She's not being pulled under. I don't see any blood, but like, it's this huge mess. And I'm like, we just got to get out of here. We got to, I got to get her and we got to get back to the beach. And that's the mission. And we have to do it as fast as possible because they're triangulating on our position. So I jump in the water. I grab her. We're swimming. I'm swimming. And we get back to the beach and we live, right? And that was the fastest I've ever swam in my life. And so when we're back on the beach, I'm like, what happened? Why? Why were you screaming? And what had happened was that she had got stung across the face by a Portuguese man of war, which if you're not familiar with the Portuguese man of war in Australia, they call them blue bottles and they look just like jellyfish. So they're meaningfully distinct from jellyfish for some reason, but they are essentially jellyfish. She's stung across the face and she had these like marks from the from the jellyfish from the Portuguese man of war that across her face and she's in incredible pain. And I was like, oh, what a crazy moment. What a moment that made me feel alive. Because in that moment, I wasn't thinking about what I do for work. I wasn't thinking about waiting tables. I wasn't thinking about like where my life was going or was I on track? I was thinking about the sharks that in my head were triangulating on our position. And that has always been a powerful modality, a story, a lesson. You have these moments of freedom 
when you decide that you're going to go all after one thing. And I'm not saying anyone out there should go swim around sharks, cut your leg open, bring somebody that gets stung by a Portuguese man of war. And I hope that doesn't happen to anyone. But it is powerful to be able to say, hey, how can I take an experience and live in the moment? And going forward, and as I think about this now, it's not about moments that are locked by fear or panic or whatever, but rather moments I choose to lock with passion, with vocation, with intrigue. And I think that in the same way you can feel them locked because you have to do something, you can make them locked because you decide that you have to do something. Australia for me was an experience. I had many different stories, but it was always something that I look back on and I never regretted. Even though there was many times, weeks, sometimes months, that if I were to take any single moment, I might say I'm unhappy. I might say I'm lonely. I might say I'm hungry or tired or worn out or I'm not sure if I'm doing the right thing. But then when I look back on it, I remember the moments that mattered. And that's what life is. Life is a collection of the mundane and the spectacular. But when you look back, you really tend to focus on the spectacular. And that's one of the reasons why studies have shown over and over again that People in their 60s, 70s, 80s tend to be on average the happiest because they've lived a full life. Because what is a full life? A life is full of spectacular moments. And you can say how full, how much life can you live? And to that, I say, it's up to you. How much life do you want to live? How much is it important to have moments of different, unique experiences versus how much do you create value in having that rhythm, because rhythm allows you to build empires, right? And build love and build connection and build this deep relationship with yourself, with the things around you, with the people that you're with. And so there's this balance of, do I want depth in rhythm with something that might not be spectacularly different? Or do I want newness? Do I want the growth that comes from the discomfort of being in a new place? And those two variables are different for different people when it comes to what the success equation is. But I think it's important to be mindful and to choose with intention the degree of which you weight those variables in your own life. Australia is a crazy time. There's another whole episode, one that I will share soon, where I fly to Tasmania get involved with a group of underground French graffiti artists, find some unique and wonderful animals, and challenge myself in ways I never thought that I would. I love these little moments, being able to share stories with people, because when you look back at your life, you get to decide. You get to decide how the stories shape you. You get to decide what lessons you learn from the things that you do. And by speaking it into existence and by asserting the chapters, the uniqueness, and the beauty of each little moment that you have, you then create in your own mind structure and importance out of something that is fundamentally chaotic. And I think that is both powerful and beautiful. Thank you for listening to this episode. 
I hope it is helpful.